Welcome to Mom and Up. With your co-host, developmental psychologist, Dr. Marty Erickson, and Dr. Aaron Erickson, maternal child health specialist and nurse practitioner. Here's my grandma, Marty. And here's Aaron, my mom and mom. Welcome to Mommy Enough. I'm Marty Erickson here with my daughter Erin, and I'm so happy to bring today's guest to you. She's a dear friend of mine, longtime colleague, and someone I greatly admire and respect. She brings just a wealth of information that I think every parent should have at this point in time about the education of our children and particularly reading education, uh, which has a controversial history or a history of controversial issues, I guess I should say. And we're at a real turning point, I think, in terms of what we know about the best way to get every child reading. So I'm really delighted to bring to you today. Dr. Ann Casey. And Ann earned her PhD from the University of Minnesota's School Psychology Program. She and I overlapped a little bit in our doctoral programs there. And she practiced for many years, both as a school psychologist and a special education director in the Minneapolis Public Schools. Over the years, Ann also has taught at the University of Minnesota, supported graduate students in their practicum placements, and consulted nationally on effective reading instruction. Anne tells us that proper reading instruction has been a passion of hers for almost 30 years, and that's exactly why we've invited her to join us today, because of how crucial proper reading instruction is for our children and the fact that effective reading instruction hasn't always been a given in our schools, which seems really strange, but it's the truth. So welcome, Anne. Thank you, Marty. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and as you said, it's a topic near and dear to my heart talk, to talk about uh, kids who are struggling to learn to read and um, what can we, what should we be doing in our educational system to really help these kids be more uh, uh, proficient and not be struggle. As, as I think most people know, reading or your inability to read well is an impediment to all the other education topics that uh, we have. And so it really is a foundational skill for all of all learning on K-12 education. Mm, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, Anne, as, as a school psychologist, I imagine you have dealt with many different aspects of children's learning, behavior, and well-being. Uh, but you have a particular interest in reading. And so I'd like to know a bit more about how and why reading instruction became such a central part of your work as a school psychologist and administrator. As Marty said, I worked in uh, the Minneapolis public schools, um, but all, prior to that, I worked in the Chicago suburban schools. And uh, so in all of those settings, I found that there seemed to be an, an awful lot of kids who were struggling to learn to read way more than you would expect. Um, not all those kids could, you know, be learning disabled or have dyslexia, you know, they're just, uh, so I started paying more attention to what was being taught and how it was being taught. 
And I was really lucky enough to go to uh, the conference of the National Association of School Psychologists some, sometime in the mid-90s, and I went to a session that was on reading instruction. And one of the um, articles that the references that the speaker uh, talked about at length was a book that changed my life called Beginning to Read. Um, it's by Marilyn Adams. It has a subtitle, um, Thinking and Learning About Print. And that book came out in 1990. So I didn't get around to reading it until sometime in the mid-90s. And this book really was a summarization of all the reading research up until 1990. And I was very surprised to find that it was really clear in 1990 what good reading instruction should look like. And to get right down to the point, that there needed to be explicit and systematic phonics instruction as well as uh, instruction in phonemic awareness. So um, then the plot thickens from there. <laughs> that why are is why have other people not read this book or looked at the research, and why has that not had an impact on what how reading was actually being taught in uh, American public schools? So if I can go on from there if you'd like me to go into a little more depth. Okay, um, so um, think the predominant view then at that time in the mid '90s on how to teach reading was that. It, Reading should be a natural activity that if children are just exposed to good literature and um, vocabulary and uh, rich print environment, that they will learn to read uh, well and fluently eventually. And that, um, while there wasn't a lot of research to support that view, um, it was widely adopted across the, the United States. And um, I'm going to give you just a very short summary of that because I could go on at length uh, about it. But, um, and I would also refer you to, if you would like more, much more information about how we got to where we came from and where we should be now, is an, another podcast called Sold a Story um, by Emily Hanford, who's an educational reporter. Uh, and she has a six session um, um, episode. Uh, podcast about this topic. Anyway, um, there is a, a woman named Mari Clay who is from New Zealand, and she was getting a, a really strong reputation for helping kids learn to read in New Zealand. And then she started getting invited to the United States, and she you know, talked a lot at conferences and whatnot. Mari Clay had uh, developed an intervention called Reading Recovery. And this um, intervention followed the same uh, premise about uh, that I spoke before about kids just didn't need explicit instruction in phonics. They just needed to be surrounded by really a rich print environment, vocabulary, etc. But one of the things um, that she was teaching kids to do when they came to a word that they didn't know, rather than having them sound it out, which is part of phonics instruction, she uh, recommended that they be uh, told to look at the content of what they've already been reading, you know, with the context, and also to look at the pictures and see if the pictures gave you any clues about how to, what that word might be. 
So that isn't really reading instruction. That's sort of taking a guess and hoping it's going to be the right one. She did get some really positive results um, with first graders. Um, and so that's how her program took off in the United States. But I think you, most of you who've read uh, little kids' books know that there's lots of pictures in kindergarten and first grade texts. But by the time you get to third grade, those cues are no longer there. And so you really can't uh, rely on guessing. You need to learn how to sound out the words. So that's Mari Clay. And then in our country, there are three um, women. They were all university professors, Lucy Calkins and then Fontas and Pinnell. Both of them developed curriculum materials that were of the same philosophy as Mari Clay's work. And those materials got picked up by one publishing company and uh, it really was widely distributed across the United States. And those materials, if uh, you look around, you'll find them in many, many public schools in the United States. But as I, I said before, uh, we knew in 1990 that kids really did need phonemic awareness and phonics instruction. So um, just switch on to how this has proceeded. So this was all in the 1980s and 1990s. And as you might expect, there were plenty of people like myself who were sort of protesting that, you know, kids need direct, explicit, um, systematic phonics instruction. And so that, those, that time period got referred to as the reading wars. And then in that, on 2000, uh, the federal government got involved and um, brought together uh, people from across the state, uh, all the states, um, who were experts in reading in terms of their research on reading instruction. And uh, the National Reading Panel was um, put together and they uh, developed a really good document that you can just find on the, uh, by Googling it, National Reading Panel 19, or 2000. And um, in that report, um, the main outcome of that is that they listed uh, fundamental skills that all children need in order to be proficient readers. And those things are phonemic awareness and to be very short about what that means. It's just the idea that Letters make sounds, you know, so the pieces on the looking at a, a piece of paper where there's a letter and that letter has a sound. And um, then the next uh, part of, of, of the foundational skills is phonics, which also is referred to as decoding, decoding the language. But it's also putting all those sounds together in a word to actually be able to read the whole word. And then uh, vocabulary um, instruction, fluency instruction, the idea that, you know, you have to read at a certain speed. If you don't get through the entire text, you're not going to necessarily be able to understand the text if you don't read fast enough. And then uh, the last, of course, and general outcome that we want for all kids is really good comprehension instruction. I'll ask you a question. Um, and let's fast forward now to what's happening today, because uh, the National Reading Panel, as you're describing it, 
um, really did kind of come in with very strong research-based information that kind of resolved the uh, reading wars, or at least in terms of anybody who's really looking for research-based practices in teaching reading, right? Right. And um, and so then for quite a few years going forward from that national reading panel, um, we still had these other ways of teaching reading showing up in countless school districts across the country. In many places, very little attention or direct instruction of children in these five or six, if we include writing, which I personally think we we should, they're they're totally integrated, Um, you know, phonemic awareness, just even the idea that a letter makes a sound, uh, and phonics and decoding and figuring out all these, you know, consonants and vowels and how you put them together in words or how you understand what, when they're uh, lumped together on the page, what that's saying. So, you know, that's kind of astounding to me, really, as somebody who, uh, you know, also uh, got my degree in school psychology and spent uh, the first part of my career teaching special education, uh, specifically with children who had what we then called SLBP, special learning and behavior problems. And that was a mixture of kids, quite frankly, with a lot of different underlying problems. But vast majority of those kids um, really had trouble reading and hadn't been taught phonics until they got into special education, where it was more common uh, to use that kind of direct instruction approach. So, um, I wonder if now you could take a look at what's happening in 2023, and much thanks to you and other leaders and advocates like you, we are seeing major changes in practice and in policies around reading with the direct instruction of phonics and so on um, really being declared absolutely essential to this large process of teaching reading. So um, what are some of the things going on today? And, you know, how far are we? I mean, it's uh, most of the people I know now in in your field and and mine are onto this. But there are a lot of places where that still isn't happening. Can you put some numbers to that or give give us a better picture of how that word is getting out? And particularly, you know, do very many parents know this? Or are you really bringing this important information to a lot of our listeners for the first time, perhaps? Okay. Um, Let's just start with with a statistic. Uh, In the last uh, National Assessment of Educational Progress, which um, is done in in fourth grade, so around reading, there 32% of American children in fourth grade were at the proficient or above level in reading. That means 32%? 32%. That means two thirds of the kids in school are not proficient readers. Uh, And then some of those are really, really poor readers. And um, it's really an embarrassing statistic when you look at uh, how our results are compared to other uh, nations, uh, industrialized nations who have um, supposedly good um, instructional practices going on. So what happened after the National Reading Panel was that um, the major publishing companies that provide the curriculum materials that American public schools buy 
did make modifications to the curriculum. So they added phonemic awareness and phonics, but in, uh, well, not just my opinion, but uh, I'll leave it at my opinion and many other people's opinion. Those uh, phonics and phonemic awareness activities were kind of sprinkled throughout the curriculum. There was no systematic process for how kids were supposed to learn them. And in most cases, they weren't getting enough instruction. The curriculum materials that teachers were being provided with were not, um, you know, what kids needed. They needed a more explicit and systematic uh, approach. Meanwhile, um, teacher preparation programs were uh, teaching teachers to teach reading, as I've previously described, that you know, you, all you need is this great environment for kids to learn and they'll naturally be able to learn. And I, I fear that uh, there's still American colleges and universities where the preponderance of, of teachers, prepar- you know, teachers who teach teachers, professors who teach teachers, to um, they're still not getting the, the skills that they need in order to be successful with their students. So um, this is, as you alluded, now changing. Um, State legislatures are getting involved. I have to say, while the federal government has been very involved in like uh, putting together panels and um, there's all kinds of things at the Department of Education, if you dig deep enough, wonderful um, resources for people about how to teach reading in our schools. But they can't dictate to states, as you know, that uh, that's the major uh, purpose of state government is to uh, decide how we're going to teach the kids in our state. So states, legislators have just gotten fed up with this lack of um, moving the dial on educational reading assessments, and they're just not making any progress. And so they're legislating you know, you're going to either, and they're going about it different ways. In some ways, they're uh, specifying what curricula the teachers can use in, in that each school district, or they're providing uh, themselves strong um, professional development for teachers on, in helping them become more systematic and explicit in their phonics and phonemic awareness instruction. And universities, are they, are they getting more caught up on this? Well, we can hope so. We can only hope so. But um, like in our, the state that we live in, Minnesota, just recently, this past spring, um, uh, installed a new reading act. And um, it uh, does a number of things, but it begins with screening uh, all kids in kindergarten, first, second, and third grade twice a year. So we don't, so we catch these kids when early so we can instruct, give them this instruction they need at, at an early age. The older you get, the harder it is to overcome bad habits in, in learning to read. So uh, we can be happy in our state that things are going to change. Um, uh, it also, at, at the University of Minnesota, the Center for Applied Research and Educational Improvement, part of the Reading Act is, has CARI, the acronym for that organization to provide five uh, supported, meaning supported by the research curriculum, reading curriculum. And they have to have that up on their website by January of this coming year. So um, that's going to be 
helpful for schools too, because just choosing uh, curriculum materials can be an overwhelming process for many school districts. And it gets political instead of really being focused on what kids need. <laughs> so I'm very optimistic. It's taken a very long time, but it is definitely the tide is turning. I don't have the numbers of uh, state legislators that are in the in the process of mandating, you know, people, uh, school districts adopting these um, practices. Uh, but I know it's a lot. So, well, I have a question for parents. I mean, we're talking about, you know, there's evidence of certain types of curriculum are, are better than others and um, are more evidence-based. And so if my child's school does adopt the right curriculum, can I kind of sit back and not worry about my child learning to read? Oh, that's a really good question. So curriculum is one thing and instruction is another. So you need both. You have to have solid curriculum materials that are supported by the research. And then the teachers need an opportunity to get, uh, have professional development. So they provide, they give the curriculum to the kids as it was intended to be, not as they're guessing it should be, you know? And so um, you've got to have both. You have to have a strong curriculum that provides the materials the teachers need in order to provide the high quality instruction. And um, honestly, it's uh, not an easy thing to do. It's There's a lot of nuances in learning to read. And I, I'm a, a real supporter of as much support as we can give to teachers. Uh, most teachers are love having like a coach, for example, come in and give them feedback on what, what they were really uh, doing well and then what could they improve upon. I think most of us are like that. We like to get feedback because too often teachers are not getting any kind of feedback about their instruction. And that that is the key right there. So is really making sure that we have good instruction. I have to inject a personal comment that just just popped up to the front of my memory here. Um, when I was first teaching elementary school in Des Moines, Iowa, back in 1967, brand new teacher. I was barely 21 years old. I graduated from college early and I was just as green and naive as anybody could be. And I uh, taught in a school that was in a very low income neighborhood. This was pre-desegregation and it, it had, a, you know, just a very, very crowded classrooms and lots of kids who were coming to school for all kinds of reasons, not well prepared for learning. And I tell you what just made it possible for me to um, to really kind of rise to the task was that I had a mentor, a master teacher who was assigned to me as a new teacher. And I've talked to so many people who never have experienced that. This was a, a systemic plan in the Des Moines Public Schools. And lo and behold, when that mentor came the first time to uh, help me, to observe me first of all, and then to coach me. It was my beloved fifth grade teacher from when I went to school in a different district yeah. um, in Iowa. And she was a person who was there for me at a time in my life when there were a lot of hard things happening in my family. And, and um, you know, I, I just really needed someone like her when I was 10, 11 years old. And then there she was, as my, kind of my angel coming into my classroom. Mrs. Silver, Louise Silver was her name. She was just a wonderful 
wonderful and, and really, really bright, competent teacher. So um, you know, that gave me a real good start. And then I went on from regular classroom teaching into special education. And then eventually, you know, as you well know, got my PhD in ed psych and, and taught more at the university level. But anyway, I just, I think that training and then I'm so glad you added that idea of coaching. Um, and this was a kind of broad mentorship that I that I was receiving, but it really was, um, you know, it just took me a big leap beyond what my, uh, you know, quite high quality um, educa- pre-service education was at Iowa State where I did my undergrad work. But anyway, that... Uh, that is so important. I'll add a question now that I have the that I have the floor with the three of us here, um, and I, I'm going to go back to the idea of parents. And I I just wonder if you could say a little bit about what the parents listening can do. And I mean several things by that. You know, what can they do from early on? We know that um, there are all sorts of activities that we can and should do with our children or make sure that their childcare providers or, or preschool teachers are doing with them to help them get ready for all that the uh, formal K-12 schooling is going to confront them with. But also, um, you know, are, are there things that parents can do not only at home and in their direct interactions with their kids, but in terms of being aware of this and being advocates in the systems, in the districts or, or whatever? What are your thoughts as an expert on this important topic? Uh, well, uh, really from infancy on, you know, the, the parent is the child's first teacher. So talk, 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 talk to those babies. Uh imitate their sounds, you know, they, they babies coo and a uh, parent, you can make that same sound. And then maybe as they get a little older, you can make a sound and see if the baby can imitate you. You know, there's all kinds of things. That's all phonemic awareness training right there is just uh, dealing with sounds. And, um, you know, as kids get over older, like toddlers, you, there's so many uh, books that provide uh, rhyming activities and, and rhyming is another phonemic awareness activity where you listen and you, you know, how does cat and mat, how are they the same and how are they different? And um, let's see. Um, there's, if you, uh, when, when you're out in the grocery store, just anywhere, going for a walk, grocery store, talking about the things that you see and giving labels so you're developing kids' vocabulary. Um, and just, you know, I have a kindergartner grandson. He was over, and he's just starting to learn to read. And he, the, I think the name of the book was something like uh, Pig and Son. But the title used the ampersand instead of ant, uh, ant A-N-D. And uh, he goes, Grandma, what is that letter? Because he knows his letters, not all the sounds, but he knows his letters. And I'll interject myself right there. It's much more important to know the sounds those letters make than the names of the letters. Mm, <laughs> the yeah, amen to that. Yeah. Anyway, um, what what is that? And I said, well, it's just a shortcut for Anne. And I mean, he was, he'll, I know he will not, he's, he said the word again, ampersand. I go, yes, that's correct, ampersand. So as much um, talking, you know, having books at home, reading books, you know, when you're reading the books, you know, have kids, you know, predict what's going to happen on the next page. You know, that's a comprehension activity. 
what do you think is going to happen? Why do you think that's going to happen? Um, these are all great skills that parents can help their kids uh, before they ever get to school. Mm. If, you, if a child gets to kindergarten and they're really struggling and um, you're not sure whether you want to talk to the school about it yet or not, there's a I think a wonderful book called Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons by Siegfried Engelman. And it's a direct instruction. It's an explicit and systematic approach that parents can use. Everything you need is right in the book. And um, I used that with our granddaughter when she was in kindergarten because she was uh, struggling a little bit. And um, she reads, the, you know, she's 14 now and she reads, so and, uh, she's no longer a struggling reader. Um, and I was really happy to see she's not struggling with multisyllabic words, which a lot, a lot of kids can get through a grade school. Um, but when you, by the time you get to content oriented reading material, you have to be able to do the multisyllabic words. You can't just guess at the end of the word. So, um Anyway, and then if you want, if you are just a person who likes to be an advocate, you know, maybe you've had your own personal experience of your child uh, struggling uh, and maybe other parents are coming to you and asking you about what to do. I mean, do not be shy about approaching the school and asking to speak to the curriculum director and have that person explain to you what are they doing to help kids learn um, and have they adopted materials that really meet the national reading panel um, research uh, the outcomes that they found that we need to have. So Mm -hmm. those are just a few things that I can think of, but you know, any, anything like that would just make all the difference in the world. Well, that's a good start. And honestly, I think this really ought to be a cause uh, that a lot of parents and grandparents uh, who who sometimes, not always, but sometimes have more time than the parents do yeah. to take on those extra tasks. I'm I'm not the one to <laughs> to say that, but um but I think that, you know, this is so important because it is so foundational. It's foundational to the way kids are able to communicate. And it's not only about the reading uh, as, you know, as information, but it just has a lot to do with how we relate to the world around us. And so it has a huge impact. Um, and I, I think we'll try to pull together with it. Maybe we can get you to help a little bit. Pull together just a short one pager for parents and grandparents um, how how to really um, make sure that reading instruction is done in the way it should be done based on lots of good research and the uh, knowledge and wisdom of people like you and Casey. So um, thank you so much for uh, all of uh, all of the good information you brought to us today. It's really fun for me to have my old buddy with us today. Um, but most important, it's really um, critical, I think, that parents and anybody listening and educators um, who listen as well to really get out there and make sure that best practices are expected and used with all children so that we can get that 32% uh, figure way up. That's appalling uh, to me as a, for a country like ours to um, be performing at such a low level in the basic skill of reading. So thank you, Ann Casey. We're really happy you joined us on Mom Enough. And to all of you listening, thanks to you too. We hope you'll come back again next Monday when we'll have another new Mom Enough episode with a great guest as always. I'm Marty Erickson here with my daughter, Erin. Come back next week. 
Content copyrighted by Marty and Aaron Erickson. All rights reserved. Visit MomEnough.com for an archive of all Mom Enough shows and many free downloadable resources on child development, parenting, and maternal health and well-being. Do you think I'll have a show called Kid Enough someday?